Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Boys Growing Up is the topic of this visit to the archives in the second program of our two-part series on boys with Michael Gurian, recorded in January of 1998. Michael Gurian is the author of The Wonder of Boys, What Parents, Mentors, and Educators Can Do to Shape Boys into Exceptional Men. In this program, we talk about the different levels of family, the need for a tribe, and how to create one, how the media is taking the role of a family member and the problems that that creates. We'll examine the effects on a maturing boy of the multiple daily surges of testosterone and how to provide meaningful moral and spiritual direction for boys. I spoke with our guest, Michael Gurian, by phone from his home in Spokane, Washington, and asked him about the adolescent boy's need for a tribe. It's so crucial for adolescent boys. I, I often say to, to people, to my clients or to audiences, I say, you know, if you don't have a tribe set up for your boy uh, by the time he's getting to 10, consider your family in a state of emergency. Now, I'm being a little overly dramatic, but here's what I mean. Uh, let's say we have a boy, and he's raised in a, say by a, we have, let's say we have two or three boys raised by a single mom. Dad's gone. Single mom, of course, is doing everything she can. Uh, but they're hitting adolescence. Uh, some of them are hitting puberty. The testosterone's just moving through their system. So they're becoming, uh, you know, they're getting more sexualized. Uh, they're thinking more about that stuff. They're, they're getting much more physical. Um, uh, their brain, the cognitive development is happening between 10 and 15. The cognitive, all the, all the, all the brain development that makes them think about the cosmos and, and uh, the future. And all of these things are happening. And they can't process. Uh, again, we're, we're averaging. We always want to remember that we're averaging, that, that some girls will be one way, some boys another, but that for the most part, the boys are not going to be as good because of the way the brain is set up. They just won't be as good at processing all of this incredible growth uh, through words. And they're not going to be as good at processing it through words with one person. Um, and especially that mom, that single mom, who they're now psychologically supposed to be separating from uh, in, in the first five years or so of adolescence, between, say, 10 and 15, they're going to start pulling away from mom. That's what they're psychologically set up to do because they have to become men and they have to become independent individuals. Michael, let's define this tribe that uh, should be set up by age 10. Yeah. So, so what they would, what they're, what they're, the problem that they're in is that their one caregiver can't give them the kind of mirroring and give them the kind of uh, love and attention that they need. She can do what she can, but she can't give it all. So, what they then tend toward is, is they look to father. Uh, hopefully, if he's around, um, they look toward other male mentors. They look toward their peer groups. They look toward uh, other alpha males. You know, powerful teacher males, uh, uh, and as well as some females. Um, but we all, we all want to realize that as testosterone hits them, they're going to look more toward males because males will understand that better than females will. They'll understand this aggression hormone um, that the males have in them. 
And that, that means then that they have to be provided by their community with a lot of these folk with uh, a lot of father-type people, a lot of mentor-type people, teacher-type people, if they're not provided with that, uh, they have a greater likelihood of, of getting into moral distress, psychological distress, in other words, of turning to crime, of turning to drugs, and all sorts of things. Uh, I can give a, a sort of a uh, painful example of that. Um, more than 80% of our criminals are males who have been raised by single moms. Uh, this is not a condemnation of the single mom. It's a condemnation of the structure, the system we have set up in which we don't raise the boys in a, in a healthy intergenerational tribe with, with the teacher elders, with the grandparents, with the, uh, the peers. Uh, we don't do that. The boy is raised by a single mom, and at a certain point the boy separates from the mom, and there isn't a tribe well set up for him, and except for perhaps a peer group like a gang or, or other, other guys. Uh, but it's not intergenerational. He's not getting much wisdom and guidance and direction. Well, it wasn't until recently that uh, males knew who their children were, maybe in the past uh, 500 years, if that. So we're talking about a major social shift, uh, but we're not including in that that biological shift. Yeah, now it is longer than 500 years. I mean, we've known, we males have known pretty much since the agricultural age, we're talking about 10,000 years ago, um, uh, we, we knew, most of us knew, but then uh, it was growing. I mean, we, we were having clearer ideas over that, that period. But 10,000 years is not a very long time. Uh, and so we're, we're, as you say, we're, we're trying to make one shift. We don't have a lot of information on the other. We're kind of shifting toward males being primary caregivers of families, which we have been for over a number of hundreds of years. We have been. Um, but that's a blip if we look at the four million years that we've been developing. And um, a part of the time that we've been trying to make the shift to males being uh, parents and spending a lot of their time parenting is, as you say, we haven't been paying attention to the biology, which, which sets them up for a different sort of life. And again, we're, aver we're just averaging because a lot of males gravitate toward parenting just boom, you know, like that. Uh, but on average, uh, it, it we have to socialize our males a great deal more than we do to be hands-on caregivers and nurturers of kids than we do our females because they're not, they're not biologically wired to do it, whereas the females are. And, and that is a place where the tribe helps and where we used to be able to do that in certain ways. For instance, when a tribe was set up, when, when our, your and my ancestors were, you know, wherever all of these folks were from, mine are from Eastern Europe originally and Italy, um, 200 years ago in those countries, there were tribes set up for those males. And those tribes, especially the, the male initiation systems that existed there, would, would give the young boys uh, lessons in what they were supposed to do. And uh, they did not tend to give them lessons in, well, you're going to end up uh, suckling that little child, because that, that wasn't natural to them. But it did give that male lessons that, okay, no, once you hit adolescence, here's what you do, and you're going to have a family, and here's how you take care of your family. We're in a situation now where everything's in such transition. We've thrown out all of that stuff because we want males to do everything, but we're really not socializing them in ways that are biologically appropriate. And uh, it's, it's gotten us in a lot of trouble. Our adolescent males are very confused people. They really don't know what they're supposed to be doing in life. What would you suggest to some direction? Well, I would say, number one, every person parenting an adolescent male right now or, or mentoring or educating one, has got to educate himself or herself on the, on the biology he's dealing with or she's dealing with. 
that's, that comes first. Let's start with a description of that biology then. Well, we're, what we've been discussing, that testosterone-driven person, we've got to understand that a male, uh, a male who's in puberty and, and you know, beyond, so 13, 14 and beyond, that male is getting five to seven surges of testosterone through his body a day. So that, that creates a certain kind of human being. And, of course, that's some, some of what The Wonder of Boys is about. What human being is that? Well, we're talking about a kid who, who uh, looks at the world in a very male way, as a hierarchical place, a place where he has to prove himself, a uh, place where he, if he's going to focus, he's going to focus on certain tasks, and he's going to be uh, expected to be more aggressive, um, and he will tend to be aggressive. And, and even if he's not physically aggressive, I'm not, not every adolescent male does sports. That's not what testosterone is only about. It's also about other forms of aggression, like trying to get to the top of the student government or getting to be first chair in the band or um, getting to be the best math student. Uh, so so we, we look at this, and, and we also look at the male brain. This adolescent, as his brain develops between 10 and 15, he becomes... He can often stop crying, for instance. This is something that really is hard for a lot of parents. Uh, we had a kid who he would cry at 6, 7, and 8, let's say. Uh, he, he was so emotional. And then 13, 14, 15, uh, wow, where have the tears gone? And we have tended to say, well, that's socialization. You know, we're training him not to cry. And, and so it is somewhat that. We, we definitely are. But a lot of it is t- that's what testosterone does. As it washes through the brain system, it alters the brain system. And this is it's it's not teaching a 17-year-old male that he ought to cry when he's sad. It's teaching him that when he's sad, he ought to uh, repress the sadness and go do his task. That's the way that brain's set up. So when we understand that, then we say, oh, well, what do we? how do we want to help this kid function? And uh, some of what we do is we help him use words more, and a lot of what we do is we, we provide him with all sorts of people in his life to mentor all of his hidden abilities we don't expect that he's defective because he doesn't cry, uh, and we don't expect that emotional success means crying per se, even though it would be great. Well, I hear a conflict in what you're saying. Uh, uh, helping him use words more, in some ways, for some males, goes against their um, ability to use words, which is different from mentoring hidden abilities, unless you're saying there's the hidden ability of using words. Oh, well, it's, for me, it's always a both-and. I mean, I, when I work with adolescent males, I try to get them to name their feelings and to use words. At the same time, I try to look inside them beyond the, the veil and the hostility that they put up and beyond their silence, and I try to see what else is in there, too. So my standard, my measurement for success in dealing with an adolescent male is not to get him to cry or to get him to say, I felt uh, fear when blank happened. Those are neat, and I try to make that happen, but they're not necessarily my standard of success. My standard of success is to look at the way his mood changes, and it may be that he's not going to really use many words to get there, but that by my being with him, for instance, um, my, I mentor a 16-year-old, and I'll go uh, out in the woods with him for hours and never say a word, but he flourishes. So both and is the best approach. Let's help them use as many words as possible, but let's also honor the fact that they may not want to use words. Let's talk about uh, morality and spirituality and how uh, those issues are, in many cases, not addressed in our society, but could and should be addressed. Oh, yeah, you're hitting on something so important. 
boys, uh, it really, it's so important with boys to give them morality and spirituality, and, and here, here is a primary reason. Uh, they don't have, the, they're not linked in automatically to, um, to what their moral commitments are and what their spiritual commitments are in the same way that a girl is. Uh, a girl, when she starts menstruating, she knows that should she choose to, uh, she can have a child. She's reminded of this every month, and it takes a number of days, and she's connected with her life cycle. Uh, boys don't have that. Uh, that that menstruation, especially as it's well nurtured by by a girl's tribe, is a very spiritual thing. It's a very sacred thing. And uh, it also rules a lot of the morality of the girl. She knows, especially when she has a kid, her moral commitments are clear. And um, uh, or at least she has to wrestle with her moral commitments. Let's say she chose to give up the, give up the child. She's wrestling with moral commitments. Well, for the boy, again, there's nothing that he's hardwired uh, in that way. So that's why societies from the beginning of time have have made sure to get the boys well mentored, especially between 10 and 15, uh, because that's when their brain development, the cognitive brain development capability exists for them to understand morality and spirituality in a really free, uplifting, um, a generous, broad way. Uh, that's, that's the great time. Before that is wonderful, but the most important time is early adolescence. Uh, give them a lot of morality training and a lot of spirituality so that they feel that they belong in the cosmos, that they have a sacred place in the world, uh, they know what their moral commitments will be, they know what a good man is, they see it modeled by their father and or other male mentors, and of course also by mom and other caregivers. Uh, they see it modeled by people out in the world, and they're tested in that morality. They're given more responsibility, uh, they're given more freedom, and they have to you know, uh, weigh responsibility and freedom, and they have to make moral choices. All of the basic stuff that we try to teach, uh, I'm arguing that we're we're doing our best, given the system we live in, but that our boys probably need three or four times the amount of morality and spirituality training than we give them now. I want to talk about those uh, ways of getting that three or four more times, but first I want to say that my guest this week is Michael Gurian, the author of a recent book entitled The Wonder of Boys. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Michael, uh, one of the ways that uh, boys and girls and everybody in our society is given uh, indeterminate moral and spiritual training is through the media, through the use of television, through the use of radio, uh, that's unchanneled, that has a commercial uh, goal behind it as opposed to a moral or spiritual goal. Can you comment on that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, a number of things to say there. Number one, the, the media right now is at least third family to our boys and sometimes is second family. By that I mean that our boys are raised in three families, as we were talking about before, the, the nuclear, the, that close family, then the extended, and then the communal. And our media have become communal family. Our, our boys uh, are relating to Michael Jordan uh, sports figures as well as to the Jerry Seinfeld. They're relating to them. And, and using their language and uh, wearing their clothes and doing all of those things as they would when they model off of an uncle. So we got to realize that, that the media is not just some distant thing. It's actually in our child's family life. Now, once we realize that, I think then we start altering our media practices considerably. For instance, we make sure that there is not a TV in the room of any of our kids, male or female. No TV in their room. 
uh, because, of course, that just draws them away from, from us, from human beings uh, who are intimate with them and attaches them to media figures who will never be intimate with them. So we get rid of that. We monitor on, on through middle adolescence. We monitor the amount of time they spend on Internet, watching TV, playing video games. A specific note on video games. The, ma the primary target for video games are young adolescent males. They buy almost all the video games, um, about like 70%, and then older males buy uh, quite a few. So we got to realize this is the big target, and video games uh, do that brain pretty much no good. You know, I mean, really, there's not much use in the video game. I'm not saying they're bad things per se, but if our, if our boy is playing these video games more than 15 minutes, half hour a day, on average, uh, we got to realize that that's, that's his brain development, especially in the years between 10 and 15. Uh, his brain is developing at an exponential rate, and it's developing around a video game. And it's not developing around intimacy. It's not developing around schoolwork, but around a video game. So these, these sorts of things. Also, if we study the brain development of boys, uh, adolescent boys between 10 and 15, and we watch how they become media addicted, uh, we, will, we will want to cut out for, for instance, ADHD boys, if... if uh, Can you define that? Uh, that's a, a attention uh, deficit hyperactive disorder, uh, or ADD. Uh, you know, that's what the kids are on Ritalin for. Now, if, if someone's listening and they have a child on Ritalin, and he's a young adolescent, one of the best things they can do is, is cut down his media. Uh, because we have uh, my, my new book, A Fine Young Man, that will be out in June, lays out the biology and the brain stuff related to media. It's not yet in The Wonder of Boys. But one of the things to say there is that the, the, um, the, the neocortex and the way that it attaches to the quick-moving images uh, addicts a lot of our adolescent males to this media, and it also overstimulates the brain, which just adds to the problems that parents of attention deficit kids are having. So, for instance, we got about a million kids on Ritalin, a million boys on Ritalin. Getting, getting them to stop watching as much TV and doing video games, that's going to help a lot of these kids. What you're saying, uh, Michael, is get uh, personal interaction uh, with older people, older men, uh, by and large, for the 10 to 15-year-old uh, boy. Uh, don't watch television. Don't use the mechanical or electronic devices we have. Um, but isn't that pretty hard in our society? Yeah, now, I, I'm not saying don't. I just say curtail and monitor. Uh, I, for instance, I think that the media is actually a wonderful teaching tool and that we can use, uh, like, for instance, I watched, I was talking about the boy that I mentor. He's now becoming a young man. We went to the movie Spawn together, which is, you know, pretty much, I mean, it's not something that would be my first choice, but it's what he wanted to see. And we had a great discussion about the media Spawn, uh, about the movie Spawn. I mean, we got into um, how males armor themselves. Uh, if no one, ha if someone hasn't seen that, it's just a, yet another kind of superhero thing and, and what the, what this male character does is armor himself, and he has to learn how to use his armor, and that's how he defeats this devilish uh, bad guy. Well, uh, this 16-year-old, he really could open up when we talked about the movie Spawn, whereas he's a relatively silent kid, and it's hard to get him to talk much. But boy, talk about this movie. He, could, he, went on for, he and I went on for an hour. So the media can be a wonderful thing if we use it as an object uh, by which we engage with our young men. I think it's great. And, and also, of course, they can learn a lot from Internet and from the media. But always we've got to be using the media for some other purpose. 
uh, for some some being teaching them critical skills uh, um, uh, than just being a place where they consume, where they buy things, and where they get entertained. Um, too much, you know, three or four hours of entertainment with video games, it's just not healthy for the developing brain. So I'm just saying let's be a lot more moderate than we're being. And move to what areas then? Well, move toward more human contact, more physical activity. Uh, as you're saying, more human contact, of course, is first, more physical activity. And I would want to add to that more natural activity. Uh, if we look at, I, I do an exercise when I give talks with, with uh, parents and with educators, and I say, all right, now let's write down the amount of time that the boy is spending in, with any sort of media. Now, and if we take the national average, it's seven hours a day. Okay, and then I say to them, now, let's say you just took two of those hours and you took the boy out for a walk or for a drive uh, out into nature. Uh, you went fishing or you went hunting, if that's within your family structure, uh, or you, you went camping. Let's say you added up all those hours. Uh, we're now starting to talk about hundreds of hours that would be spent in the natural world, and that's a healthier world uh, than, than the world of a video game. So the natural world, and then also church activities or spirituality activities, uh, whatever the family spirituality is, um, those are all going to be more healthy than that seven hours of TV. I would say, you know, one to one and a half hours of TV, video game, that's all right. But much beyond that, uh, we're losing the opportunity to do all the other stuff. Let's talk about uh, sex and love and the instructions that uh, boys ought to get that that many boys don't get. Uh, all right, that's such a big topic and so important because right now our boys tend to get a few hours, um, between one and two hours of sex instruction, maybe up to five, uh, you know, in fifth or sixth grade. And then they might get a talk with dad uh, somewhere else during their adolescence. And then the rest of what they learn is from peers and from media stereotypes and, and that stuff. And that's not a healthy way to do it. Uh, boys need, uh, I, I divide adolescence into three stages, and my suggestion is that boys are getting uh, specific sex education for all three stages. Uh, stage one is between nine and, and 13. They get a lot of sex uh, education from the whole community, parents and teachers there, and we need to have dads especially going into the schools and helping the female sex educators to educate the boys, because, of course, there's some things that the boys just can't listen to a, a woman tell them. You know, it's, they're just boys. And then we also need uh, 14 to, to 17. That's the second stage of adolescence. We need specific sex instruction there. And then it has to get more complex there, of course, because by then our boys are starting to couple. They're starting to sleep with, uh, you know, about half of them have slept with a girl by the time they're 16. And then we need to continue, I, I believe, continue uh, discussions of sexuality, specifically in the family and in the colleges, uh, and making it even more complex, of course, more psychological uh, during college age. Uh, so three stages of this. And the model that I use, I've spent a lot of my life in other cultures, in Turkey and India, uh, and I look at those models, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in those. There's a lot I wouldn't want to borrow, but I like, I really, really think they do well because they keep the sex discussion going from about 10 into 17 or 18. Um, they, Can you give some specific examples? Well, I'm, I'll, the family units, the fathers, um, the uncles, the grandfathers, they're talking to these boys and these young men and mentoring them in their relationships and mentoring them about their bodies and what their bodies are doing and how they're changing and, um, and, and just having the human contact about it. 
more than than we are. We tend to be more puritanical, and we tend to be more scared of it. And um, you know, the normal thing I notice is is for the same thing that happened to me. My dad, I, I give it as that little story at the beginning of the chapter on sex. My dad said while we were watching tennis, do you know you know everything about sex, don't you? I was 15, and I said, yeah. And he said, okay, well, if you have questions, ask me. Okay, Dad. And that's it. And I know that some people do more than that. But uh, that that's, we've got to be, I, I, you know, once a month, uh, once every couple of months, it's got to come up. We that have, would be difficult if uh, the boy and the father don't know the words or have the vocabulary. That's right. And, and that's, why, that, that's why books like The Wonder of Boys are out there, and that's why more books will be coming out and more TV programs. We'll, we're gonna, I, I think we're getting to a place where we're feeling more comfortable with sexuality and where we can get dads and boys uh, into it. And, and I think if we let them joke around about it, uh, they do pretty well. And also if we educate boys on not just uh, you know, how their body's changing in puberty, but why are they suddenly, for instance, having all these sexual fantasies? Uh, let's pick that as a specific area where men and boys have to talk more. And, of course, where women have to understand male biology. Um, sex fantasies for males is biologically wired, and uh, it, exists, it exists so that males can become aroused uh, whenever males need to become aroused, even if they're with a female they're not attracted to. That's how it developed over four million years. And so our adolescent boys have these very uh, intense sex fantasies, and... Um, and no one really knows how to talk to them about it. They, the fantasies scare them. They think they're immoral. Uh, they gravitate toward uh, really terrible magazines to, to try to get some mirroring for those fantasies. Whereas, if we talk to them about them and said, you know, a lot of this is normal, and here's how you have to control this, or here's how, if we get in those discussions with them, we're not going to find them having to read Hustler as much or looking at those violent uh, child porn stuff as much because they're engaged with us on that. Well, Michael Gurian, I want to thank you again for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, once again, I'd like to ask you if there's uh, an interesting book that uh, you could recommend. Well, <laughs> besides The Wonder of Boys, of course. Um, you know, there is a great book, since we were talking about sexuality, a great book that's just coming out called Beyond the Birds and the Bees. Beyond the Birds and the Bees by Beverly Engel. And that is a wonderful book on uh, probably the best thing I've seen on teaching sexuality to children. So I, let me add that to the list, Beyond the Birds and the Bees. Well, Michael Gurian, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Michael Gurian is the author of a 1997 book entitled The Wonder of Boys, What Parents, Mentors, and Educators Can Do to Shape Boys into Exceptional Men. The book he recommends is Sex on the Brain by Deborah Blum. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 
5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.